the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the beginning to the gospel of Mark. That's the journey and adventure we're going to begin today. Uh, we're going to look at John. John Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and I pray that we all understand more and more the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that our lives are transformed and we flourish as we grow in the power of the Gospel. Amen? You guys want to do that with me to grow in the Gospel of Jesus Christ? <clears throat> this morning we're going to go over these first 11 verses in Mark. We're going to look at Jesus, the King. We're going to look at uh, some background on Mark, who is Mark. We're going to look at John the Baptist. And we're going to look specifically at Jesus' baptism that happened here towards the end. So 
first, the background on Mark. This gospel is attributed to Mark. Who is he? It is by most scholars estimated that the gospel of Mark um, is written by the only key character of Mark in the scriptures, mostly recorded in Acts. I'll read a few scriptures to you. Acts 12, 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where they were gathered together and were praying. It was common for people in this age to have two names. Mark did. He had the name John and he had the name Mark. A lot of times it was the name that you grew up with, whatever your nationality was, and then you would keep the Roman name. So, um, thus you have Saul and you have Paul, Paul frequently. So thus you have John and his Roman name Mark. So uh, this Acts 12, 12 is when Peter was released from uh, prison miraculously. They had beheaded James in Acts 12. And so the church was under fear and persecution. Herod, the king at that time, saw that the Jews got excited about that, so he went at the killing and beheading James, and he arrested Peter. And then, you know, the church was praying. Where, where were they praying? At John Mark's house. His, his, name, his mother's name was Mary. They were gathered in there praying when Peter's miraculously released from prison by an angel. The church is praying in Mary's house. She must have had a big house there in Jerusalem uh, to host everybody for the church together there. And they are gathered there. Peter is led out of prison. Where does he go? He goes and he's knocking on the door at Mary's house. And this is John Mark's mother. So we learn this of him. In Acts 12, 25, we see John, whose other name was Mark, is with Barnabas and Saul uh, when they return from Jerusalem. So he's uh, a key character that's hanging out with the apostles. He goes on the first missionary journey uh, with, with Paul and Barnabas. We read about in Acts 13, the story continues. John Mark is still there. Uh, it says when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. This is Paul and Barnabas in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So there it just says John. John is also called Mark. He's in that story there. John is here assisting. He's helping them. He's ministering to their needs however he can. I like this guy. Acts 13, 13. Paul and his companions set sail from Patmos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left uh, then and returned to Jerusalem. So this is where you see that uh, John Mark bails on. He gets hard. The journey gets hard. And this is where you see that later on in Acts chapter 15, verses 37 through 40, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. So this is later, they've gone this hard missionary journey, they've returned. Uh, the church is praying over them, send them out on another missionary journey. And Barnabas and Paul are like, and, and, and Barnabas is like, come on, Mark, let's go. You know, and Paul says, wait, 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 we ain't taking that guy. He bails on them. So they have a sharp disagreement, he says. Paul and Barnabas, and it's over Mark. Uh, Barnabas ends up taking Mark with him, sells away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas, and they departed. And so this is John Mark. This is who he is. His relationship to Peter is very key. 
So in one verse we will mention, First Peter chapter 5, or verse 13, says, He who was at Babylon, which is a, most scholars say a code name for Rome, this is where Peter is in writing his gospels at the end of his life, most likely martyred uh, under Nero in Rome, uh, around 60 AD to 65 AD, in those periods when the great persecution uh, that Nero unleashed upon Christians uh, is happening. And in the close of 1 Peter 5, verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. This is Peter. He's sending from Rome greetings to the church, writing his letter. And he says, and so does Mark, my son. So this is where you see the relationship between Mark and the apostle Peter. Now, there was an early church historian, author. He was the bishop of Hierapolis. He was in modern-day Turkey, in western Turkey. His name was Papias. So he's living, born about uh, the same time as the early uh, apostle Peter and Paul were being uh, martyred in Rome. He was around 60 AD. He lived about 130 AD. So he would have been there. He would definitely been interacting closely with uh, also the apostle John. Uh, who lived longer than the others, who were martyred. Uh, but he would have lived that time, known them, known the events, and what he wrote in his writings, because he was a writer, author, wrote down things. Pappy has said uh, that Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, other people interpret that as his secretary, wrote down accurately the many things as he recalled the memory, the things either said or done by the Lord. So in his writings, and then several of the early historians after him wrote these same things, that Mark was the author of the gospel, but that he was writing from the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So Tim Keller, in his book, uh, quotes Richard Bauckham, who is a biblical scholar, an ancient uh, historian, studier of ancient history and all this. He says, Mark's, Mark mentions Peter proportionately more than any of the other Gospels. So when you read through Mark, you'll see Peter, 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 all involved in this. He's reading and studying and looking at it from that point. He says, if you go through the book of Mark, you'll see that nothing happens in which Peter is not present. Peter's present in the stories, people's stories. The entire Gospel of Mark, he concludes then, is almost certainly the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So when the gospel reads like that, it doesn't read like a boring historical figure, but Jesus is this powerful, active, doing person, uh, experiencing the power and action of the living Jesus. So when you start reading the gospel of Mark, hold on, because it is quick, quick paced, quick moving, and it's hitting highlights. It's the shortest of the gospels. It's compact and action-packed. And it reads just like you would imagine Peter's eyewitness testimony telling all these uh, stories and encounters that he had with Jesus and Mark, uh, the biblical author, recording and writing them. So can you imagine with me this gospel written by Mark either during the very end of the life of Peter or possibly soon after he died in Rome, this church in Rome listening to this gospel for the first time. Can you imagine the, the power of that uh, being read? R.C. Sproul uh, 
talks about this. He talks about imagining the church there in Rome, imagining them gathering on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, like we are here now. You're gathering as the church in the first century Rome, and you're forced to assemble underground. You have to change your imagination here. Uh, you're not just built, you know, of your free will coming here and joining and not uh, concerned about persecution, but the church was heavily being heavily persecuted. The persecution of Christians is raging under Nero as the emperor. You are caught. If you're caught, you realize you could be arrested and subjected to the death penalty. You're underground in the catacombs. They were just outside the city of Rome, underground burial sites. You're, you're gathered around under there in dark, uh, you know, and, and, and underground, and there's skeletons and cadavers around you. And someone comes into your meeting to read to you the recently published gospel by Mark. Can you imagine, gathered around, huddled there? You hear for the first time the reading of this gospel. Uh, most all historians say the gospel of Mark, the earliest uh, recorded history of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And here in Rome, where you know uh, John Mark and all of them were uh, there with Peter, knowing at any time they could be killed. Most of the apostles had been killed and martyred. And you know that Nero is slaughtering and killing Christians. Uh, and you know that could happen at any time. And now this recorded testimony of the life of Jesus Christ is being read. So listen with those kinds of ears as you read and delve into the Word of God. Okay, Let it stir your heart that this is the Word of God is recorded by Mark as as the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So he says, Mark 1 1. Anybody imagine them riding catacombs, skeletons, right off the bat? The beginning of the gospel, the news, gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Peter. No background. No, no verse, no historical data, just right on the face. This is Jesus. This is who I'm presenting. I'm presenting the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What an opening, what an opening sentence. What does it mean to call Jesus Christ? Jesus the Christ. Heard one person say that a lot of people think that's his last name. Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. What does that mean in the, in the Greek? Christos. It means the anointed one. It is the same Hebrew word as the Messiah, who the Messiah would be. It would be the same as saying Jesus the Messiah, the Mashiach, the promised one. He, and, and it means the anointed one. But more than just another anointed one, it means an anointed royal figure. It is saying Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the promised one. And remember, Peter, that he is the one, Matthew records, and, 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 and that, he, that Peter said this and had this encounter with Jesus in Matthew 16, 16. But in Mark, it's recorded. In Mark 8, 29, Jesus gathers them together and says, who do people say that I am? This is an important counter. It's an important revelation. 
it's an important verse to see where the disciples are with their understanding about who Jesus is. And Jesus is asking, Do people say that I am? And they say some things. And then Jesus asks, Who do you say that I am? Who speaks up? Peter, that's recorded in Mark 8 29. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. You are the Christos. You are the Mashiach, you're Messiah. You're the anointed royal figure, the king. And then Matthew records that Peter said, and you are the son of the living God. That's how Peter opens up his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Oh, thank you, Chad. I remember that. I remember when you said, who, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's how he opens up this opening sentence of this gospel, which is what Mark chooses to put forward first. And then he jumps right into it. So Mark moves quickly. And he jumps right into Mark 1, 2, 3. As it is written, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Everybody's thinking about John the Baptist. Been there in <clears throat> Reading this gospel, listening on the edge of their seat. Oh, jumping right to John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. <clears throat> John Mark has immediately taken us into the Old Testament and showing that Jesus, yes, is the Christ, the promised Messiah. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. There's a connection. There's not a disconnect in who Jesus is. He's the promised one of all these Old Testament scriptures. He's that promised Messiah that was promised to have a forerunner who would come before him, before the Messiah would be a herald to announce the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus had that herald, and his name was John the Baptist. And here's what he heralded. And he was quoting these scriptures and blending them together. <clears throat> From Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, Isaiah would say. In the wilderness prepares the way of the Lord, makes straight in the desert the highway for our God. And we know one of the last minor prophets in Malachi, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, which said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before us. There's a connection with who Mark is saying just immediately, who Jesus the Christ was with the Old Testament, that he would have this forerunner, his name was John the Baptist, he would be this voice crying in the wilderness. And then he begins to explain more about John the Baptist and his ministry. He says, John appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed camel hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. Here's what he preached, verse 7. After me comes he who is mightier than I. See, this is the herald. This is the announcer. This is the announcer of the king. The king is coming. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of his sandals. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie that type of straighter. Now, John the Baptist was great. He was a prophet on the scene, no voice from a prophet from God had seen for 400 years. He's on the scene, great crowds from the other gospels are saying, gathered together, John. 
He's like the greatest thing that has hit Israel in that region in centuries. Not just decades, centuries. And here he is saying, I'm nothing. I'm not even worthy. This is my purpose. This is my calling. This is my goal to announce, to make straight the path of the Lord. And he's crying out. And they're all like, yeah, we like you, Jeff. Yeah, we like you, John. Yeah, we can feel you. It's connected to the Old Testament to the new now arising. After me comes one who's mightier than I. Then he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is different. This is profound. Everybody get the Holy Spirit? What are you even talking about? Constitution King with the Holy Spirit. What are you saying? No. He's going to pour out the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> He's going to do so many much greater things than you can even imagine what you're seeing that I have done. John is heralding that message. The King is coming. Someone so much greater than I. I wouldn't be worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sand. But someone so much greater than I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So much greater than I, this Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the answer to all Old Testament prophecies and prophets and scriptures. I am that final prophet, John the Baptist is saying, and I'm announcing the arrival of the King. And nothing will be the same from this point on. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Uh, everything, the whole world will be turned upside down. He's announcing this is his purpose and calling from God, and he is doing it in great fashion, John the Baptist, just like God told him to do it. This is moving at a fast pace. We're in verse 9 now already, and Jesus, we're only nine scriptures into Mark, and Jesus is arriving on the scene and being baptized by Mark. We're nine verses in. This is how short and compact the Gospel of Mark is. Uh, in those days where the Lord says, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Uh, why even put that part in? Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, you see, Isaiah, people knew their Bible, they knew the Old Testament, they would uh, connect this to Isaiah 9, this prophecy of who? The Christ. See, they're still thinking of the Gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the, the, the Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. He's that king. He's the son of God. Who is he? Is he related? Is he fulfilling you know, Old Testament prophecies? And he is. Isaiah 9, this messianic uh, prophecy in verses 1 through 2 said, There will be no gloom for, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then he says this, that would come from Galilee, this beautiful, glorious way. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. It would come from the north. It would come from the northern part of the country, from this Zebulun, Nepali. Nobody heard of Nazareth. Nazareth was nothing. It wasn't even there. It's still not really even on the map. And it wasn't then either. But Galilee was a region. And it was a region of, of outcasts, midfits, far from Jerusalem, far from the presence of God. And out of that area, 
John the Baptist proclaimed, and Mark writes here, in those days came from Nazareth of Galilee, connecting to the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 91 and 2. Jesus is that promised king from Galilee, coming from those northern lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, the region of Galilee, comes Jesus of Nazareth walking onto the scene, and a great light was walking on that road, a great light that was made glorious, not by the road itself that he was coming in on, but because of the one who was coming out of Galilee, the promised king of all the hopes and all the fears of all the nations of all the years are coming in from that road to bring to her who was in gloom and anguish the light of the glorious gospel. And in walks Jesus into the Jordan to be baptized by John. The promise of all those years of all the Old Testament scripture coming into the Jordan Sea. Hope to those who are in gloom and anxious to be wise. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is an event that all the Gospels record, specifically the Synoptics, in detail. Very important. John refers to it, all of them mentioning and talking about it. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, now this is a word that will be used 42 times through the Gospel of John, and then all the rest of the writings of the New Testament, uh, scholars say it's used about 12 times. So this is uh, you know, John Mark, Peter's favorite word. Immediately. <laughs> you're going to read that over and over again. Now look through that as you're studying and reading the Gospel of Mark. So immediately, uh, it says that the heavens were torn open. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit of Simeon came back from the dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. What is going on? What is the importance of it? John baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus shows up in the Jordan. What does this mean? He's not being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He's sinless. That's why John, uh, in recorded in Matthew 3, 14 and 15, says, what are you doing? I need to be baptized by you. There's a confrontation there. John doesn't want to do it. We read a little bit more details there. Peter's guilt and fault. I'm not going to go into this right there. But Matthew records that. I need to be baptized too. You come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And all of that means John consented and baptized Jesus. So John's struggling with this. What does this mean to fulfill all righteousness? What is happening? Why is Jesus coming to be baptized? What is going on here? We see that it's to fulfill all that is right. He is doing all that is righteous. He is fulfilling something. Do this, John, us now. We'll understand it partially now and more later. But this is in doing this in obedience to the Father. It's something that Jesus has been told by the Father to do. He's fulfilling all what is right. What is right is to obey the Father. Jesus is obeying the Father. How and why? Well, one, he's being baptized 
and he's being coronated as king. It's not just him getting baptized, but what happens? Why is this a coronation of Jesus being king? One, there is the idea of the Holy Spirit in prophecy. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2 says, There shall come forth, this is a messianic prophecy, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's, you know, descendant, Jesse, the father of David, where David came and Jesus is coming from that, that shoot. Okay, it's a messianic prophecy. From the stump of Jesse, looks like it's dead, cut off, nothing there, but life will come out from it again from the stump. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In, in verse 2 of this messianic prophecy of Isaiah 11 says, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Are you following me? And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So this dove comes down like a dove. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Anointing Jesus as king. He is that prophetic king, Messiah of these messianic prophecies. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one upon whom God's spirit rests. Isaiah 42, another messianic prophecy. Behold my servant, whom I hold my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is God the Father putting his spirit upon Jesus, the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus on his coronation day. That is one of the first things that this is. You see the Holy Spirit, this anointing, the heavens being torn open, heaven coming down to earth, new creation happening, a new humanity, a new a race of people being created in Jesus Christ is happening. The only time this word torn, like the heavens torn open, is used is when the veil was torn when Jesus died and cried out, he was finished. And this new opening is happening with Jesus is baptized. And this new anointing, Jesus the King, is beginning a new creation. The King has arrived. I mean, that is in this baptism. But there is also the Trinity at work here. We have the triune God in creation. We have the triune God here, Jesus' baptism. Because not only do you have heaven torn open and the Spirit descending like a dove upon Jesus, hovering over him, fluttering over him, landing upon him, resting upon him. John sees this, the Baptist with his eyes. He sees it, and then they hear, he hears the voice of the Father. So you have the Father here speaking, God speaking out of heaven, his approval and blessing over who? The Son. You have the Father, Son, and the Spirit in action here, just like he did at creation. You, this is what the Father proclaims, the affirmation of the Father, the blessing over is over his son in Mark 1 11. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Psalm 2-7, another uh, messianic psalm, messianic psalm, talking about the king, talking about the Messiah, talking about this Christos, this Mashiach who will arrive, this anointed royal figure, says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's what the Father says, you are my son. He proclaims that at his baptism, the messianic psalm of Messiah, God's only son, 
the Trinity being present at Jesus' baptism. So he's proclaiming him the Messiah, the King, his Son, the Messiah, his only begotten Son. What else does the baptism engage us with? Jesus, when he was challenged with his authority in Mark 11 later, in verse 28, he rode into uh, Jerusalem, uh, pronounced as king, he turns over the money changers' tables, all these things happen, and the chief priests and Pharisees come to him in Mark 11, 28, and they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or, this is in this too, another way of saying it, who gave you this authority to do them? Who gave you this authority? This is a question of authority. Who are you, Jesus? And what do you think you're doing? Why do you have this authority to come in here? Who are you? Jesus, as he normally does, doesn't answer the question. He asks them a question. And he says, I'll ask you a question if you answer me. So what is the question he asked them? In verse 30, was the baptism of John. He's talking about authority. They're questioning of authority. And then he's talking to them about the baptism of John. It's in Mark later. Mark 11. Verse 30, he says, was it from heaven or from man? That's all you've got to say. That's the only answer I want. It was from heaven. It was from man. Either one. It's that simple. That's my question to you. Was the, I'll tell you. Do I get my authority from? Who gave it to me if you answer me that question? Chief priests, the leaders. Mark 11, verse 31. They discussed it with one another. It was hugged up. Did you not believe him? But if we say it's from men, they were afraid of the people, for they all loved John to really be a prophet. So they go, We don't know. And they really were all testing. See, because John's baptism of Jesus was his coronation as king. And if they were to say John's baptism was heaven, then he would say, Why didn't you believe him? Because he said the heavens were opened up, he said the heavens were torn, he said he heard voice of God, and he was a prophet of God, and he was the Elijah come. He was the forerunner. He was heralding the announcement of Jesus, and they couldn't say that because it would have meant believing that Jesus was the king, and they did not understand where he got the authority from, because he got the authority that day. It was bestowed upon him. The Spirit of God poured out upon him with measures on him. Jesus is that king. They would not believe. Jesus in his baptism is also willing to identify with the declarative act of being powerful. As in Williams that years ago. And uh, Jesus was willing to identify with us, humanity, as sinners. He was fulfilling all righteousness. What is this obedience and humility of this king that is crowned king, but will also be baptized to identify with dead, lost sinners? We know baptism is buried into his death, raised to walk in newness of life, and he was willing to go through this obedience to identify with sinful, lost humanity. 
holy man and holy God, this Jesus the King, was willing to obey the Father's will, to fully be pleasing to the Father, because he knows he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. You see Jesus explain that later. He said, he called them together when they were arguing over the nicety of life. And that's in Mark chapter 10. Jesus called them and said, hey, you know, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever shall be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be last, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then here's how he defines himself in Mark 10, 45. But for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, when he's bowing down, under the water and the hand of John immersing him, he's identifying with the Greek. He's identifying with his lost people that are trapped with sin. He knows he's willing to die to ransom you back to life. He knows his calling. He knows what that baptism will mean. He wants with the uh, disciples in Matthew 3, 14, when they were uh, talking about baptism and, and arguing over his baptism, he said, and they, and he's, you know, Jesus said, um, are you willing to drink from the cup that I'm willing to drink from? Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized? And they, they go, yes, we will. Talking about baptism, will you identify? Will you be willing to go through this? He knows what baptism means to these men. And they go, yes, we will. And they right and write now, you know, when you come into your kingdom, He's like, you, you will be baptized with the baptism like I was, but you, I can't give you that. I, my father will give it. He'll give it my life back to me. But that, that discussion there is about um, baptism. That discussion there is about identifying with baptism, drinking from the cup, uh, being baptized. And that's what happened at Jesus' baptism. He was identifying with lost, sinful humanity. So his baptism, his, his coronation is king, and his baptism is Jesus identifying with lost sinners. You see the triune God is present there. And Tim Keller uh, says uh, in his book, Jesus the King, originally titled The King's Cross, he said, the sacred writings, there is one place where the Spirit of God is likened to a dove, and that is in the Targums. In the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures for the Jews at Mark's time would have been reading. In the creation account of Genesis 1-2, the spirit hovered over the face of the waters. The Hebrew verb here means to flutter. The spirit, the spirit fluttered over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2. To capture this vivid image, the rabbis during the time of Mark, here translated this passage in the Targums, writing in the Aramaic. The earth was without form and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered over the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. So there are three parties there active in the creation of the world, and there are three parties present. Jesus' baptism, something very profound is happening there. 
the voice of the Father speaking over his beloved Son, <clears throat> the Spirit is breaking through, tearing the veil between heaven and earth, and the Holy Spirit seems descending like a dove and resting, floating in the dove and resting upon Jesus. Mark is deliberately pointing us back to creation, just as in the original creation was a world and a project of the triune God. Mark is saying that the redemption of the world, the rescue and renewal of it all, of all things, is beginning now with the arrival of the King, who is the project of the triune God. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Jesus is that promised King. One Mark, the Gospel writer, proclaims him as King, the Son of God. And we're going to continue looking at these stories, these action-packed stories of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus all through this glorious gospel. And I hope you read it like we're heading down there, reading it and listening to it for the very first time. And I'm not going to tell you. I hope we're reading it with an intensity to be transformed by. I pray that this journey through the Gospel of Mark will awaken our hearts and stir us to see Jesus the King, one who moves in power and actually living and active then and every bit of now, transforming us more and more, Lord God, through this Gospel, through your Word. May the light of Christ shine through us to those who are lost in this dark world and bring them to the light of life. Amen. We're going to sing the last song, and we're having the communion element up here in chairs. We have them up here. And uh, so as the worship team comes to meet us in this last song, and as they're singing, just to come, maybe this side to come and grab a cracker and a cup. And I'm going to let you this time uh, take them at your own leisure and just pray and remember the Lord's death until he returns. Amen. So let's worship and sing and take communion together. Thank you. 
of the leader, the power of the Holy Spirit, anointing you, filling you, within you, empowering you to go and be a light to this lost and dark world. Go, therefore, be sent by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to proclaim Jesus as the King, He's the Messiah, Christ, the Son of the living God. Senora, yeah, good to see you again. Glad to talk to you. Um, haven't heard anything on the fence yet, but I do need one more load of rocks. Okay. Uh, Did you give it all straight already? Not all. Can you dump like part of the load in one space and one in another? Okay, good. Yeah, wherever you want. I'll just meet you up there, and then you let me know what your schedule's like. If we can do it this Friday, that's fine. If okay. we can, just let me know what time. Because I've been very busy yesterday, I spent all day putting shingles on. Yeah. <laughs> 